you are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I am Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Tiu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel to name a few. You can expect deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. Listen to Andrew Yanowick explaining us why automatic quality assurance is vital for computational pathology and AI-based algorithmic analysis of digital health histopathology images. Welcome to the sixth season of AI Ready Healthcare. It's a typically cloudy day here in Darmstadt, Germany. Nothing really special. I'm your host on Irvan, but today I'm really, really looking forward to have a chat with a very special researcher from the computational pathology background, Andrew Janwick. He is currently an assistant professor from the Emory University, USA, but I guess he is located in a different continent, so we will hear more about it once we start talking. Andrew's research focuses on applying computer vision and machine learning algorithms to digital pathology, and one of his areas of expertise is in leveraging deep learning to build computational models to aid pathologists in uh, tasks such as uh, disease detection, cancer grading, and I'm sure we will hear a lot on this today. But first of all, welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me. And I, I hope I live up to the uh, very fantastic introduction that you've given. Wonderful. So I guess our traditional question is always the becoming question. So who you are, what your journey was, and where you currently are, how, how have you been? So can you just maybe talk a little bit about that? I like this question, who you are. I feel like I'm still trying to, uh, you know, reflect and come up with a definitive answer to that. So I'm originally from uh, New York. I'm from Long Island in a nice place called the East Meadow, which is very suburban. I grew up there and I bring that up because I started using computers when I was uh, about five years old. And then I started programming basic when I was about seven or eight years old using a, a Commodore 64. And uh, it was simple things like copying programs out of the user manual, which was much more extensive and detailed than the user manuals that we have nowadays. And uh, I used to just go and make number guessing games and, and things like that. And, and that kind of really spurred this idea of, of computers inside of me and what we can do with computers. And I basically continued on throughout that with, for, the, for the rest of my life. Later on, I went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, which is in upstate New York. I studied computer science and mathematics. I also received a master's degree in computer science with a specialization in computer vision. In particular, my thesis was on a topic called particle filtering, and we use particle filtering for human tracking. 
And uh, in fact, I think particle filtering is still a, a pretty routine go-to method for even uh, biological cell tracking, cell movement, and, and that sort of stuff. So it's interesting to see how really great ideas manage to perpetuate themselves through uh, long periods of time. After that, I would say I, I had, you know, maybe this goes back to your point of, of who you are. I, I don't think I really knew who I was. I thought I wanted to be a programmer or something like that. I, I don't think I was really that keen on being an academic. I, I worked quite hard to get my my degrees and thought maybe it was time to do something, you know, truly adventurous. I moved to Alaska where I was a salmon fisherman for three months. Then I moved to Vienna, Austria, where I worked for the United Nations and helped wrote software that tracks nuclear material that the UN inspectors use. I decided I didn't really want to work in an office anymore. Uh, just like waking up in the morning wasn't for me. Uh, so I moved to China where I taught English for eight or nine months to a wide range of students from little kids to professional adult uh, business English, as, as it's called. Uh, at some point, I, I actually met a guy in a bar, a Scottish guy who owned an oil company consulting firm, said, do you want to move to Africa? I was like, sure, that sounds exciting. So I moved to Nigeria for a while and helped build an oil oil commission or help commission in oil processing facility in the middle of the Nigerian jungle. So I was in and out of there in China for a while. And then, you know, my life kind of, I, it, it, it was fun. You know, I was having a good time and, and I was, I think I was experiencing a lot of things. I was, I was absolutely seeing the world. I was experiencing different types of, I would say, administration, different types of politics, different types of countries, different types of people, different types of cuisine. I mean, it was, it was really, a, I, I think, a well-rounding experience. Um, at around that time, uh, a close family member of mine was was diagnosed with cancer, uh, unfortunately. And I came to realize that although I was kind of enjoying my life, I could probably focus a bit more and, and contribute in a, a more meaningful way. And at that point, I uh, started my PhD at IIT Bombay in India. Uh, and in fact, uh, I think you even had uh, Nat Matabushi as a speaker uh, here on, on your podcast before, but he was uh, my PhD advisor or my external PhD advisor with uh, Professor Sharad Chandran at IIT Bombay. And uh, that's when I started working with Anat. And, uh, you know, there were some more kind of digressions in there, but eventually I finished my PhD and I had a startup company. We don't need to discuss that, but eventually I came back to working with Anat uh, as a postdoc at Case Western Reserve University, where he moved to. Uh, then I became a senior research scientist there. Now it actually gets a little complicated. And now I, I live in uh, Geneva, Switzerland. I'm an assistant professor at Emory, as you mentioned, but I also work with the hospitals in Switzerland, in particular the Lausanne University Hospital and the Geneva University Hospital, trying to actually figure out ways to clinically deploy all of the algorithms and, and tools that we're, that we're building. Yeah, that sounds, you have a very exciting, adventurous life across continents. So way more adventurous than I am because you have also been uh, to Africa and walked there. So that, 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 that's one more continent, I guess. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think those things, if you look at my life now, it's the exact opposite of adventurous. You know, I, I don't think Switzerland's, Switzerland's gorgeous, but it's constant. You know, it's very, you put A in, you get B out 100% of the time. So, you know, maybe... Maybe all of that adventurous nature was kind of spent. If it was a currency, it was spent when I was young, and, and now I'm basically running on fumes. Yeah, I, I guess that's one way of saying it. But I guess you, it's probably you know the balance of exploration versus exploitation, and you have done your exploration part, and now computational pathologies where 
you thought you will get the most out. And yeah, cancer is, is still a big mission, right? So it totally makes sense if you want to focus there. So I guess, uh, yeah, you mentioned about a lot of the countries and how the administrations work there. And I guess currently when you are talking about digital pathology in particular, it's a, it's a big transition, right? So even now, majority of the pathology is non-digital, so to say, in terms of the practice. So does your experience with understanding different administrations really help when you are talking about, uh, let's say, policymakers, policy questions, and how digital pathology, this transition should happen? Yeah, I think the, the idea is that everyone has somewhere in their mind some, some knowledge that you, you want to try and get out of them. And I think, you know, my mother had the most interesting way of raising me because you, you often want things from, from your mother, be it, you know, money to go to the movies or, or whatever. And she would intentionally only very precisely, as if she was a lawyer, answer the question that I asked her and never provide any additional extraneous information. It was just this. It's like, can I have money? No. And then I was like, oh, uh, and she's like, that's it. You, you gave me a question. I, I've given you an answer. Right. And then I was thinking about this, uh, you know, recently, the one thing that she instilled in me was always this concept of you're not asking the right question. So, of course, if you don't ask me the right question, it's going to be impossible for me to give you the right answer. Right. And many people don't thinking about what other people mean is a very time consuming process. So I think most people are not naturally geared that way. For example, when I was living in India, I had to get tons of paperwork done in order to register for classes and all this stuff. Indian bureaucracy, fascinating. It's a fascinating, fascinating beast. I would go and speak to the secretary's department heads, whatever it is, and I would ask a question, get an answer, and then I would just sit there and look at them because I didn't, their answer didn't make sense to me, especially because I didn't grow up in that environment. A student that was Indian that was going to that school actually understood that information, what the you know proper social etiquette for getting signatures or, or whatever it was. I didn't have that because I'm not from that culture. So instead, I would sit there and have to stare at this person and say, what is inside of your head that is going to make my life easier that you don't know that I don't know? Now I have to go in a bit. The other person's not going to do this for you, right? They're happy to go on with the rest of their job. They're not going to spend 25 minutes thinking about all the things you do or do not know to try and give you extra minutes in a 15-minute rant to try and cover all possible answers that, that you may have. It's, it's, it's not going to happen. So my responsibility, I realized, is to think more deeply about what you are, what you might have in your head, and how I can extract that information from you with better questions. And when you start thinking about things like this, everything becomes a lot more challenging, but a lot easier at the same time. I spend more time thinking about questions to ask people than actually asking people questions. When I go and write, write an email to someone, I don't just randomly write an email. Oftentimes, I'll sit there and stare at the screen for 10 or 15 minutes thinking, what does this person think that I think that I think that they're thinking that they, it's completely inefficient. It's completely inefficient. But as a result of that deep thought process, I think it actually forces me to have a better view of what might be in other people's heads so I can start to fit pieces together. And then as a result, if, if everything goes well, I can actually write a, man, this is crazy, but I can write a response to an email in two sentences. And there is a quote that's, that's come up twice in the last, in the last, you know, like a Poisson distribution. It's like something comes up, it's more likely to come. So 
this quote has come up twice in the last week and a half, and I haven't heard it for years. And it basically says, I'm sorry I didn't have the time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one. And I think this quote perfectly encapsulates that. Because you provide a lot more when you don't really have time to think, decipher, distill, and find the, the real key element behind all of that. And once you start to think of things like that, discussing policy or discussing with lawyers what actually a, the data use agreement means or what patient privacy actually means at its core, once you have that, then the thoughts actually become easier. But I think there's more of a, a deep investment on your part to get prepared for those, for those conversations. Yeah, that's really a very interesting way of really almost having an entire conversation being played into your head before it actually it happened and then maybe thinking almost like a chess player what the the responses are and whether you can calibrate the questions so that you get better responses that might help in the longer run rather than like being into some sort of a yeah so i don't know uh, rabbit's hole of a place where you don't really want to go uh, i guess you you wrote recently an article uh, on the national strategy for digital pathology in switzerland right i will put the link to the article in in the description of the podcast but for now to all our listeners can you sort of give us three takeaways from this article yeah Thanks, Sam. Thanks for the visibility on that. So that article is actually a kind of vision document that I put together with my colleagues, uh, it's, uh, Victor Kultzer, who's the kind of lead of that, uh, as well as uh, Indy Slobeck. And we essentially submitted a proposal that looks very similar to that to the Swiss government to obtain funding for uh, exactly the vision that's, that's discussed in that document. So this document is a, a sincere representation of what we think should be executed and a I'm happy to say that it's received very favorable reviews and it's in final stages of review for, for possible funding. So we're, we're very excited about that. What we came to realize in, in writing this document, so essentially it's kind of a, a vision document, as I said, on, on, on what a national policy of Switzerland will look like. In order to figure out what that is, and, and I encourage people, if there's not already a national document in your own particular countries, you should absolutely write one and, and find people that are interested in doing this because that process also exposes you to kind of these these hidden gems, but hidden barriers or hidden complexities that, that won't be obvious from, from your point of view. It's only the other people that will be able to see this. And what we essentially came to realize is, is a number of things. One is that Switzerland is, is a, a fortunate to be a very wealthy country. So there's a lot of access to really unique technologies that are not easily accessible in, in other places. At the same time, Switzerland is very, very small. And one of the challenges that we have, for example, in executing clinical trials or, or gaining interest in companies to have them, have them host our, their clinical trials in our facilities is that we don't have a large population. So if you want to go to Geneva or you can go to Sloan Kettering and you know that you need 10,000 patients with a specific, specific molecular subtype, where are you more likely to, to get that, that type of a cohort? So part of this national infrastructure is this idea that we're, we're actually stronger when we're together. Because now, if we go and we manage to somehow unionize all of the information of all of the patients that are available in Switzerland, we now have cohorts that are even larger than these single centers that are also distributed, that are also have a lot of rich metadata or rich orthogonal information that is not going to be available at, at other facilities. So we think that basically creating this SDPI is, is almost like a TCGA, but in a more organized 
high metadata information rich uh, environment. One of the key points that underlines that, which is another project I'd like to highlight, is called the Swiss Personalized Health Network, SPHN, which has been around for a number of years now as they're building this infrastructure. And this infrastructure essentially allows for, uh, with privacy preserving uh, abilities, to share patient data within Switzerland. But this is kind of metadata, clinical information, things that fit into Excel spreadsheets, maybe some omics type information. It, it, it doesn't support large digital pathology images or, or these sort of things. So the, the idea of the SDPI is to go and take digital pathology and add it on top of that uh, established personalized health network and afford the opportunity for enriching patient data with digital pathology images. I see. So uh, sort of uh, to summarize the point you said is that when you are talking really about, like you have to talk about national strategy because you learn a lot about the situation when you start talking to people who are not necessarily from your background. And then each nation is different. In your case, focused on focusing on Switzerland means you have this unique situation of great infrastructure, but not too many people. <laughs> and that basically means you sort of have to come up with one national infrastructure so that you find uh, statistical power in terms of the number of people that you want to bring together. And similarly, at the same time, the Switzerland is, is very federated. So each of the individual cantons is, is highly independent. And there are essentially four national languages in Switzerland, but I, I think three of them are probably used, which means that those patient health records are actually in those languages themselves. So if you go to Zurich, there's German patient records. You go to Geneva, there are French patient records. So now it becomes challenging to think about how to go and connect these things such that you can transfer concepts from a Geneva patient to a Zurich patient in a comparable manner. It's challenging to do that at a national scale. But if, if for example, I sit in Geneva and I only work with Geneva patients, these types of challenges are not as, as apparent. On the other hand, you think about other places like the NHS. NHS in, in the UK is, is very interesting because they can go and essentially dictate at a national level, oh, we're going to use digitalized pathology. We're going to do it this way. These are the software. These are, these are the kind of things. If you want access, submit a, a proposal here and we'll figure out how to get out, like these sort of things. So it's more naturally organically unified. And in our case, that, that's not it. So we have to think in, in line with the constraints and the criteria and the challenges of our specific country, how we can go and essentially provide similar similar services, right? I, I don't. I know the Netherlands has a similar, very big digital pathology presence. Germany has an increasing digital pathology presence. The Scandinavian countries have their own. But each of these countries is, is, is actually fundamentally different. And all of the, 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 I've not seen a single situation to date yet where there's been a copy and paste of, of something, where you say, oh, this is my national vision. Oh, let's copy and paste to someplace else that the people in that country would not look at that and laugh and say, this is just completely irrelevant to us. We don't we don't even use this protocol or we don't have these problems or, or whatever it is. So it really has to be thought about at a national level by people in that nation and really have bespoke type uh, type solutions to the challenges there. I see. So what you are also saying is that you we often talk about European strategy to digitization, European strategy, mission against cancer, but probably it's very difficult to come up with an European strategy for digital pathology without for sorting out the 
national level strategies and conversion of the digital pathology. Yep. Keep in mind that even in Switzerland, the different hospitals store their patient data in different different ways, different formats, different languages, computer languages and spoken languages. So if you think, oh, we're just going to copy everything to the same location and magically we have a repository, that's not the case. I, I don't think that any place really has it that easy, but I imagine, it, you know, I like to dream that the NHS had a little bit of an easier rollout than, than some of the things that we're, we're trying to, to conquer now. I was just uh, interested because you mentioned about this at least three different languages, Italian, French, and German across a rather small country. And then each, let's say the university hospitals or the hospital systems in each region, they have their different way of storing it. So I think earlier on you mentioned a network of personalized patient data across Switzerland that doesn't store the digital like the images but they at least store this sort of in a in a electronic health record style format the 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 entries so how do they manage to standardize uh, interoperable exchange of such such data if there are so many variations i can tell you it's it's a lot of work i'm i'm not heavily involved in that project but the the technologies themselves are essentially creating ontologies to SNOMED ID, so you can map similar concepts where you say this person had, you know, uh, a carcinoma. That carcinoma now has a subtype. You can specify a specific subtype by a known code, and that code then can be translated so that it's equivalent across all of the uh, all of the hospitals. But that personalized health network is not currently for all patients. It's for subsets of patients. So we have like precision oncology patients, and those patients have a subset of their data that's relevant to the study of cancer that uh, undergoes this, we'll say, homogenization process, because it's, it's really a, a very hard, um, hard, hard thing to do uh, at scale. Yeah, that's really wonderful, because when I came up sort of the names of, the, 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 of this particular podcast, ARD Healthcare, the major question really I wanted to ask is that, uh, how to make healthcare AI ready? And it, in a way, I guess a center question of it has nothing to do with the algorithms itself, but really the healthcare, the processes, the sort of pipeline that the patient has to go through, and then how to sort of homogenize that, get the information together before you can make things happen. So, so I can give you two examples of, of exactly that. If that's the main theme of your podcast, I can, I can speak directly to this from, from personal experience. One challenge is, is just general, and you said it's not about algorithms, and I agree with you, it's not about algorithms. The challenge is, is the quality of data in general that you receive is, is critical. We had a project recently, a student, very smart, capable student, wanted to go and train a deep learning algorithm to identify lymphocytes on an image. We had some ground truth that was provided for us, and he trained this algorithm and, and he was new to the field this was you know part of a, a kind of an introductory project for him into computational digital pathology so he trained an algorithm and he got let's say 75 percent accuracy it doesn't matter accuracy f1 scored whatever it's 75 percent right so his natural inclination from what he reads in papers and what he sees on the news and what he learns in his class is i need to do a lot of fancy algorithm stuff in order to improve the quality of my classifier so I'm going to try training a much bigger network. I'm going to try 
you know, using a, a ResNet and a DenseNet, or maybe I'll use an ensemble of these different, right? And his, his project plan, when he saw his first set of results, was all algorithmic development. And, and he would gladly would have spent six months on algorithmic development because this is essentially the external impression that, that we give people. Deep learning is sexy, so we should use deep learning. How do we use the all bigger models, fancy stuff? I'm going to change my activation uh, layer types and all this other sort of stuff. I know that that's not the case. And, and I think that how you can find people that do this stuff day to day is ask them how much time you spent doing quality control and data cleaning. And if the answer is 80%, I want to meet these people, right? I want to know how they're getting data that's so clean. So over the process of the next three months, right, keep in mind this, this person is working 40 hours a week. Over the process of, of three months, we look at series of true positive examples, false positives, false negatives, true, true, whichever one I missed. And we start to identify some of the false positives, not actually false positives. They're actually true positives. Why? Ground truth was noisy. Okay. How about some of the false negatives? Oh, a lot of those false negatives, actually true negatives. Ground truth was noisy, right? So what did, what did he change? So over the course of three months, the algorithms were actually one-line snippets in Python to filter the data, to filter the training data, saying, oh, if the nucleus is blurry, because we know we have blurry slides sometimes on some pack, if the nucleus is blurry, don't use it for training. If there's a garbage, lots, oh, there's a little bit of a stitching artifact in the cell is split, don't use it in training. So just kind of like filtering out this data. After three months of only filtering, he reruns this, this training paradigm, does not change a single hyperparameter. And I want to stress, it, not a single hyperparameter did not change the size of the model, did not change augmentation, nothing, exactly the same. Goes from 75% to 96% on a health app tested. So 20, it was like on the order of 23 absolute percent improvement in classifier performance on health app tested that does have artifacts and all that sort of stuff, only because the quality of the information going into that system was improved. Now, if I go and I'm starting at 96% and I go and try a dense net, a ResNet, or a vision transformer, how much extra are you expecting to get, right? Maybe you'll get an extra 1%. Okay, that's great. But the first bulk of that work was, was spent cleaning and trying to clarify this data. And, and that's, I think, the largest challenge now is most people don't realize that that's expensive. It's hard to do. It requires significant domain expertise in order to do that. You can give me someone that says, I'm a master of deep learning. And for the first three months, they're not going to do well at digital pathology because they'll say, I don't, I trained with the data you gave me and I got 75%, right? The student came in 100% capable to train deep learning networks. What was missing? It was the domain expertise to figure out how to provide this, this quality. And this is where I think the, the current gap is in trying to really kind of expedite the, the delivery of these, these sort of things. I guess you mentioned at the start, you have two examples. So one is this one. What is the other one? So then the other one is, is kind of a solution to, to kind of resolve this. The challenge is, is that I, I gave an example in the context of digital pathology and, and cells, but we have similar problems in, in everything, right? It's in all medical data. If someone goes and is, is manually transcribing a diagnosis, there's room for misinterpretation of that, right? We now have, have to go and take a block of text, a natural language processing, that text, and then come up with a binary variable. Yes, this person had cancer. No, this person didn't have cancer. Or yes, it was a recurrence. Or yes, they did progress. No, they didn't progress. Yes, it was stable disease. Like all of these kind of just AI ready. Um, this is why I thought of, about what you said. AI ready information is not what, for example, a pathology report is. A pathology report is extremely useful for a pathologist. 
It's extremely useful for a clinician. It's very hard to use computation because, you know, the stuff's all over the place, right? Some people can go and, you know, a silly example, you can write weight in kilograms, you can write weight in pounds. Now you try unifying two data sets, uh, you have to figure out, oh, is this in pounds, this one's in kilograms, these sort of things. Was that in days or was that in months, right? If, if you're measuring a small amount of time, it may not be obvious. Was it was it a three month recurrence or a three week recurrence? We we don't know. You know, maybe it wasn't jotted down correctly, or maybe that algorithm misinterpreted that because it was you know the French the French abbreviation instead of the German, right? So it's like this stuff is just really hard to do at scale. So one of the technologies that I would like to promote, I have no stake in the game here, uh, except from a data consumer perspective, is this concept of synoptic reporting, where it's extremely expensive to set up. That's kind of the challenge here. Synoptic reporting is basically you take a guideline. For example, there's a World Health Organization guideline for breast cancer reporting. As a, if someone's likely to have breast cancer, you should provide these pieces of information. And this is like lymph node status and number of slides examined for the lymph nodes and you know tumor size, whatever it is. But the way synoptic reporting works is it basically works the same way that trying to buy something on Amazon does. When you start to fill in your information, it won't let you go to the next page until all the stuff is filled in. But all the stuff is individually delineated. So you say, what is the height of the patient? They put it in. There's some requirements on that. That says it, it, it could only be between 50 and 150 or, or whatever it is. You have to specify the metric that was used or the, the symbol that was in kg or, or pounds or whatever it is, right? And it goes form by form by form by form, line by line by line. Oh, you have to report this, you have to report it. Each of those then becomes a field in a database. That Now that database is AI ready. Now you can actually look at that database and say, I'm interested in this column. This was the previous tumor size because it was listed in this column. This is the current tumor size. There's a growth here, right? Now you can at least start to make numerical inferences without having to rely on, on natural language processing in order to do this. There's another study that came out that showed that just by going and switching to synoptic reporting, you actually get more forms completed more of the time, which is another nice thing to have. Because keep in mind that a pathology form is important for diagnosing and treating the patient. It's not designed for research, but a lot of the information in there is research relevant. So if you can go and provide the same treatment to a patient by filling out, I'll just exaggerate, a one-page form versus a 10-page form, and it has no impact whatsoever on how that particular patient is treated, you're usually going to end up with a one-page form, even if the other 11 pages are very important for future research components. So the question is, how can you go and balance these two things so people aren't also spending every day trying to imagine what a researcher might want. Instead, you can go and say, I'm interested in this type of thing. Can you start filling out this single button? Click the, the number yes or click yes or no. And they click yes and say, okay, now I can start to data mine this you know, in five years or, or whatever it is. And I think it's really that type of technology that we're going to see that's going to provide this, this transition from a, a pure text natural language processing requirement is something that's very nicely structured and ordered that now becomes easy, more easily interchangeable between sites as well. Because you can imagine, now, how much does it take to translate a form from one language to another? It, it's a lot easier than trying to translate thousands of actual reports. Now I can just translate the form and you click the right stuff from the dropdown. So I think that's really a, a huge opportunity that, that we're starting to see deployed. And I would love to see more. It's hard, though. It's a, it's a hard process. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I agree what you are saying. It's it's we in, in a rather equivalent project that we are working on, but for radiology, we work with a 
company who built structured reporting software. And then the idea is rather similar that if you have such a structured report, of course, it's interoperable. We have multiple uh, clinical partners, hospitals, but also you can change like translation between English, German, and the greater question, of course, is that because it's machine readable, so you can either say, okay, so I start with a first report filled in by the AI, and then the doctor, like the radiologist, if he or she is happy, they sign on it. Otherwise, they make small changes, but those changes can also be easily bringing back to the uh, uh, machine learning algorithm itself without all the hassle because it's machine readable, right? This is the grand goal, right? That's how you actually connect feedback into the system. And I like that you, you brought that point up and I want to emphasize that. Once you have a standard report, it's easy to build algorithms or easier to build algorithms to fill in that report where you say, what was the thickness of the tumor? And there's a, a little number that needs to be filled in there. You say, oh, what does that mean exactly? Oh, here are a bunch of examples that we've collected. Can we train a weekly supervised classifier with these examples or, or maybe even a supervised classifier? Oh, look, it's already able to go and generate this. What is the end result of this? Is it a, a whole text report? No, it's an integer that goes into this little text box. Okay, what's the next text box? And then you can start systematically working through these, these reports to, to basically build out something that's, that's more automated. I think that's the, the grand vision here. But it's hard because there's, there's other challenges. One, who, who develops these reports? Developing these reports, extremely expensive. You need deep, deep expertise in order to go and, and build these reports. And you need to feel confident that you're, you're doing it correctly, right? Because there's a potential that if you do it wrong and it's deployed, now you're collecting the wrong information. And who knows what the, the downstream complications of that are? You have a secondary problem where those guidelines also get updated. So the way that we go and report breast cancer, let's say 20 years ago, is fundamentally different than the way we do now. So then we also have a moving report. Right. That report that we have three years from now, you know, let's say you and I, we get together. We have to be very lucky, come up with a fantastic biomarker that now becomes standard and it needs to be reported. Now we need to go back and modify all those reports to start including that, that sort of thing. On one hand, that's good because now everyone's aware that reporting that biomarker is part of the standard and they can't submit the form without filling out that biomarker. So you get complete health records. That's fantastic. On the other hand, now you have to find all instances of that report that exists in the world and go in and, and, and change this or provide some type of update, which is not unreasonable, right? It's like a software update, but then you have different versions. Now, how do you actually go and do this? You're inside of a clinical environment. You just can't arbitrarily change forms from one day to the other, right? So it's kind of, it's, it's a very sophisticated, very complex uh, idea. It's simple to describe. I think you did a great job describing it, but it's hard. It's really, really hard. Yeah, totally. I completely agree with you. And like also the software update you mentioned that that also has some regulatory aspects built into it, right? So same thing even for the neural network that we are talking about for pre-filling, etc. So I sort of wanted to ask here a question before we move into the second part of the quality control. The one thing of it is basically that's the technology part, but the other really important about this transition of pathology to the digital age is basically about the incentives, right? So incentives and how you can build the policy in a way so that those who are building a digital framework get enough support, etc. So can you give us some insights of 
what you learned from the Swiss system that might also be applicable for other European Union nations and beyond? You know, I don't, I don't know that we can, I can even speak to that. I feel like it's, it's still sufficiently early in Switzerland that we haven't figured out how to do that at scale. I can say uh, I'm also the secretary of the Swiss Digital Pathology Consortium. And one of the things that we're doing now in our working group is trying to just create digital pathology guidelines for Switzerland. So we're using the Delphi process where we've created four or five different sub-working groups. Uh, we have very experienced people leading each of those working groups. They've pulled together a group of their colleagues, companions, and other experienced people to write up their list of statements. And then we take, we've taken those statements, we've submitted them. We have about 130 members in this organization. About one third of them are pathologists, a third of them are researchers like me, and a third of them are more on the technical, histotech side, IT side, providing the actual infrastructure to do this sort of thing. So it's a very nice, well-rounded uh, group there. And then they've spent the time to go through and vote on those statements and say, oh, I really agree with this. I really disagree with this. And then we go through an iterative process where we identify statements that were in disagreement. We clean them up, provide additional clarity, and then we'll resubmit them hopefully in the next uh, few weeks for a second vote. And so we basically converged on all of them. And this is this is where we're at, right? So you're 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 thinking about you know providing reimbursements and 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 what that kind of support will look like. We're at the point now where the first thing we want to know is what are the actual rules of this game? Where where are reasonable bounds that we can kind of agree that we should all work within in order to go and start driving these conversations. And I think that's important because without these types of, I mean, this is really like basement level stuff. Without these agreements from reputable societies that have prestigious members that essentially are leading the nation and as, as thought leaders in this sort of direction, without documents produced like this, and it sounds unsexy, right? A document is not a sexy deliverable. Someone wants a fantastic classifier or whatever it is, but these documents provide rules for that game. And that those rules then allow everyone to understand using explainable vocabulary with references where needed, say, this is how we should be thinking about this. This is how we think we should be thinking about this. This is an opportunity. We don't agree with this, whatever it is. And I think that's probably the first step there. I, I don't think you can really leapfrog that without causing too much uh, too much difficulty. Yeah, that's really wonderful. So I guess our Delphi process, you mentioned that a nationwide Delphi process towards a digital trans transition of pathologies Sounds amazing. I I hope many other nations learn from it, especially uh, smaller European states where it's relatively easier to come up with such a process and sustain it. Uh, but it, I guess it's really important and relevant uh, uh, because this isn't going to happen no matter what, right? So the only thing we have to make sure that we, we don't end up making similar mistakes as we make if we don't go through the discussion, right? So I guess the other question is back to your, some of the old comments that you, not old comments, some of the comments you made earlier about the quality control of the data and how important it is to make sure that you are doing the quality control of pathology images uh, to ensure you are getting high performance rather than tweaking at the algorithmic level. and. One uh, uh, contribution that from your side that is becoming sort of a success story in this is this HistoQC. So can you probably tell us a little bit of a motivation behind it, why you came up with such a project? I appreciate you calling HistoQC a success. That, that, 
I'm just happy that you know what it is. <laughs> that's, I think that's already a step in the right, the right direction for that work. What essentially happened was I was working with Mike Feldman at the University of Pennsylvania, and we were looking at TCGA breast cancer images. And we wanted to build a deep learning classifier like many, many people were doing uh, during that time period. And I downloaded all of the, the slides. I think there was about 800 of them um, relative to the study that, that we were interested in conducting. And I started opening them up to, you know, prepare them for, for computation, you know, do the data cleaning stuff I kind of described before. And, you know, they were, they were a bit messy. You know, they were messy. You know, there's, there's, there's pen markings on some of them, which if the pen markings on the background, fine, but there's a lot of instances where the pen marking actually goes fundamentally through the tissue, which if you're trying to make a cancer detector, a pen marking is a fantastic thing to have because it basically says an expert thinks that there's cancer here. You should definitely highlight this region, right? So that's an example of a batch effect. And, you know, people should be well aware of these, these sort of things. So what we ended up doing in this process in, in reviewing all of them, I had just from, you know, I've been in this, this, this field for a while now, I think probably like 15 years. So in, in the process of, of, of reviewing these slides, I realized that I had code that I could apply to do this. Like I had some code from five years ago that would highlight pen markings. And I had some other code that would highlight blurry slides. And I had some other code that would go and identify like cracks in the slide, right? So they were all just like little little snippets of stuff that you would have to use on occasion. And when I started manually going and identifying these regions of interest, I, I basically just gave up. I, I said, okay, there's this was probably the largest cohort at that time that we had considered. It was 800 slides. It was taking me maybe five minutes per slide. And I was like, you know, this is, this is going to be a lot of time at the end of the day. And it's not going to be reproducible. That's something else that, that we realized in that if I were to go and give the same slide to someone else, are they going to annotate it the same way as I did? Probably not. So then what does that fundamentally mean? And, and I want to stop here for a second. What does that fundamentally mean? That means that if I and you receive, let's say, a thousand inches to train an algorithm, and you and I have the same exact algorithm, right? The same exact, you know, model weights, but we'll say an entirely deterministic system. And you and I perform this very important quality control step differently. We will get different results. Now, maybe that's a good thing because if we get similar results, we could say, hey, this process was robust to differences in pre-processing. But from a scientific perspective, a scientist's goal is to hold all variables constant when, when they can and to go and systematically analyze. Say, I'm going to now change this variable, see what happens. I'm going to now change this variable, see what happens. If the first thing you and I do is create different subsets of data to actually begin our experiments, reproducibility is an impossibility, right? Because I, I won't even have the same training set. I won't even have the same testing set, right? You can even give me your list of training patients. I'll say, oh, I don't have these 10. I removed them for quality control issues. Hey, look, my accuracy is 15 times better than yours. Why? Oh, well, apparently those were the hard cases or, or whatever it is, right? So there's also room for, for sneaking in bias and, and these sort of things. So throughout this process of realizing that it's also not reproducible, what's the answer to that? And, and this is the perfect answer for an algorithm, right? An algorithm is happy to look at the slide, see if parts of it are blurry, see if parts of it have pen marking, this sort of stuff. But it has this nice property of being deterministic. So if I go and create a Docker image with specific versions of my libraries and a specific version of HistoQC, and I click one today, or I click one in five years on the same exact slide, I'm going to get out the same input, uh, the same output. So now I have some type of deterministic ability. And at the same time, I don't actually have to review all of the slides manually. I can just go and review the ones that have somehow been flagged as being a little bit weird or, or a little bit strange. 
So that was kind of the, the underlying point here was that we realized that people were often not doing any type of quality control if they had no experience with, with digital pathology and they were, let's say, a computer science department that's trying to transition. They just took images as images, the, the way that they would, for example, take ImageNet and say, oh, we're just going to use the ImageNet data set. Oh, we found TCGA images. We're just going to use TCGA images, not knowing that there are bubbles on slides. What's a bubble on a slide? If you don't know anything about pathology, you may not know what a bubble is. Say, oh, this cancerous region is very dark. Okay, but at least now if you also have quality control tools that highlight these things, that you're giving them the right questions to ask to tie into it before. Why is this region highlighted? Right now they know that there's something wrong they should ask someone who has experience about it. Why is this highlighted? A pathologist will say, oh, that's a bubble in their slide. You shouldn't analyze it. Oh, okay. So we're trying to help give people the right questions to ask as well so that there, there's some knowledge transfer here. All of those scripts, I think, practically speaking, like we're many versions of HistoQC now, but the first versions of HistoQC was, was just stuff that we were using just because we knew that we, we had to do it. But even in our own lab, everyone had their own kind of personal script. So just formalize it. We formalized it into a package that we should just do this from now on. And now we do that. And now it has like this, this reproducibility. And I think that's a, a really important factor. Well, that's really wonderful. I guess this is something that comes like as a problem from the domain itself, and you can't really come from it on the other side. I mean, I, I basically was more aware of this problem of artifacts in pathology and both digitization at, as well as when you were like preparing the slides that came from this one paper that Yuri Tolkach's group wrote for modern pathology. I think Anant is also a co-author there. And they really showed that uh, if you take trained neural networks, which are really doing well on the clean images and you throw these sort of artifacts, how the performance goes down. And this is really, really a problem that you are also mentioning. I, I, I mean, we also sort of trying to create a framework which is focused on the deep learning part of it rather than the actual pathology slides of it. Uh, uh, but this is really, I guess, a very interesting problem that is probably not as, I don't know, highly successful looking one as like, I can predict cancer grade with this much accuracy, but at the same time, it's very relevant to taste the robustness of your uh, uh, method. And also, as you mentioned, like, how to standardize results. If you are two people are using the exact same neural networks with hyperparameters, their results should be somewhat reproducible. Another useful part of HistoQC that I think is, is underutilized is the idea that HistoQC can provide quality metrics, not just artifact detection, but quality metrics of, of that image, which are the most basic ones. We'll say just red, green, and blue, average red, green, and blue values of the tissue regions. Right, which is going to be reflective of the stain intensity and the brightness and color contrast of the image. Now, we know that deep learning algorithms are kind of brittle. And if I go and train it on data from one site and apply it to another site, you're going to see a performance drop. Now, why is that? Well, it's domain shift, and we can kind of get into the weeds there. But basically, it's, it's from a different data distribution. Wouldn't it be super cool if you could measure all of your training data and say, this was the distribution of my training data? And now when you get a new piece of information in that you want to apply your model, the first question isn't to just run your model and say, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. Oh, oh, it, it looks okay. Or, oh, I guess it works. 
but instead go and run it through a check against the distribution that you trained it on and say, okay, the model that you, the image that you gave me has similar properties to the training data. It's similar in hemotoxin intensity, similar in white contrast. Your model is much more likely to work. On the other hand, you get a slide that comes in that, let's say, very blue, while all of your training data was very pink. All of a sudden, you can flag it and say, you know what? Maybe your model's not going to work. At least now you have some type of preemptive confidence as to, is this going to be something reasonable or not? And in the most extreme example, and this is something that, that still fascinates me, what happens if we take a picture of a cat and inject it into a digital pathology workflow? What happens? And right now, that cat image is going to go into a model that's going to look for colon cancer on a picture of a cat. And it's going to come back, and I don't know what it's going to say, right? But it's going to say something. It's either going to say, this image has no colon cancer in it, which I would argue is not the right answer. or it's going to say this image does have colon cancer in it. It's over here. It's going to highlight something. I would also argue it's not the right answer, right? The model that you never should have been in that, that process, right? That model at some point in time, a priori, should have just said, listen, this is not for me. I refuse to answer your question. I, I reject the premise of your question. How can we do that? Stick that into HistoQC. The distribution of those values is going to be fundamentally different. That with And keep in mind, HistoQC takes like a minute per slide. Right. So within a minute, you can already say, this is so far out of bounds. Don't use my model. Don't use my model. Conversely, you can also go and during validation, let's say you want to publicly release a model. You can say, I've tested my model. This is the training data. I have also tested it on this, these downstream data. You're not releasing public health information, right? It's just a red, green, and blue distribution there. It's completely, you know, benign to, to share. You can say, this is the distribution of the data that I've tested it on as well. If your data falls, and you can now start to go and say, oh, this was a 50% loss of performance. This was a 5% loss. And now you can start to give people some feel for when your model is appropriate to use and when it's not appropriate to use in a very unsophisticated kind of organic way, in a way that's easily interpreted. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's funny you mentioned CAT in a uh, slide because... Once we were developing some of this out of distribution detection algorithms and trying it out on our frameworks, and one of our masters is put a Jedi instead of a cat on a digital pathology. And we were showing this to our clinical collaborator, Yuri, that see, we can now detect out of distribution there. You see, I mean, it might not be that likely that you will find a Jedi, but if you find, <laughs> the cat really brought that into mind. I mean, you mentioned something about the early days of HistoQC and how sort of organically this entire system came together. And now I guess for this direction of research, you got a million dollar grant. So I guess we can expect a lot more, let's say, development in this direction. So can you give us some insights of what your plans are, where HistoQC is heading in the coming years? So we originally put a prototype of a very early prototype of Pisto QC together, and that received a, a UO1 from the NCI. And that allowed us to build out Pisto QC, but as well as many other digital pathology tools. So you can go to histoqc.com for Pisto QC. We have a tool for a rapid deep learning aided annotation. It's called Quick Annotator. It's available at quickannotator.com. I think you'll, you'll notice a theme here. We have a tool for rapidly labeling objects in a kind of deep learning embedding plot. That one's called Patch Sorter. It's available at patchsorter.com. And we have a, a new tool called Cohort Finder, which identifies, uh, it basically takes these HistoQC metrics and identifies ideal training and validation sets that balances the characteristics of your, of your data so that you have better confidence that 
okay, my training data is representative of my testing data, and these batch effects are, are well mitigated between them. Uh, that's available at cohortfinder.com. So we have early stage prototypes. I've called them early stage prototypes of, of each of those. And I think they're designed uh, essentially now for what I would consider like small to medium uh, type projects. Uh, we've been fortunate to receive an R01 from the National Library of Medicine to essentially take these tools now and over the next four years, scale them up. So now we can, the, the goal is really we can take HistoQC and not use it at the kind of cohort level, which is what it was originally designed for, like, for example, the TCGA breast cohort, but to really build it out using distributed computing and available cloud uh, resources or on-site uh, high-performance computing resources to leverage those to be able to work at a digital slide repository level. So we can start going and tackling tens of thousands of slides, 100,000 slide repositories to both retrospectively analyze all of the data that's, that's in existence in a high-throughput, elegant manner, but as well to develop tools that can be integrated into current clinical workflows in their high-performance computing environments where they're generating two, three, four, five thousand slides a day and actually have the computation and scalability to continue to, to provide those um, quality metrics back to both the researchers that will end up using them, but as well, I point out clinicians like this stuff. Because if, for example, your hemotoxin gets you know corrupted or oxidized or is not performing well, you want to know within 10 slides. You don't want to know at the end of the month after you scan 50,000 slides. So imagine HistoQC's in there and you write a very simple one-line script that says, if these values are more than one standard deviation away, send me a text message to the head of the, the lab. The head of the lab looks like, oh, there's something wrong. Let me go say, oh yeah, this was weird or oh, this was acceptable or oh, it was because this particular patient has this rare disease or oh, this is actually a problem. I need to address this right now. So there's an opportunity for that, but a major part of that I think is going to be scalability because that's that's where this is going. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. I'm really looking forward to see, I guess, in the coming years, how, how the entire research develops beyond the cohort level. And I guess that brings us to the last question. Uh, we are almost at the end of the session. And I guess when we are talking about digital pathology, there is a clear understanding that like the AI deep learning methods will play a big role in making digital computational pathology as a sort of success story. So from your perspective, in the next five years or so in the European Union level or even in the US, where does this entire basically field heading and what can we expect? I think the real, real bottleneck here is connected with, with what I said before. I think the research component of digital pathology has now greatly exceeded the capability of a clinical environment to embed it and actually use it. So a large part of, of work now is, is trying to figure out how to take existing things and, and, and deploy them, right? We have many successful algorithms for identifying prostate cancer, identifying breast cancer. When you start to say, uh, you know, there's there's even competitions based off of those, right? There's challenges where, you know, the the, the accuracy of these things is, is mind-boggling. They're, they're fantastic. Say, well, how many of these are, are clinically deployed? If I take this algorithm right now and try and put it in the hands of a pathologist or in the hands of a pathology department to try and figure out how to integrate it, that that's hard. I don't I don't know tens of hospitals that have successfully done that. I don't know any hospital that's successfully done that in a generalizable way, where if you take the next algorithm and say, oh, here's the next one. I, I now have one for prostate cancer. They'll say, oh, yeah, no problem. Just uh, copy it over there and, and uh, click save and, and it'll start running. 
I don't know any hospital that, that is in that situation. It's like each, each one requires its own kind of fine tuning and, and like, oh, these slides are a little bit bigger than the other slides. Okay. So we have to kind of change some parameters here, this, this sort of thing. So, and, and that's for the hospitals that already have what I would consider primary digital workflows. I think that the real work in the next five years that we're going to see is trying to figure out how to integrate these algorithms. And as well, I like your idea of actually collecting feedback from the pathologist. The challenge is, is, is how do we how do we do that? Right? It sounds easy. I, I want to go and when a pathologist doesn't like something, I want to have a button. They click like I don't like this, and it gets saved in a SQL database with like a you know the image name or something or the read the X Y coordinates of of uh, the slide where they clicked, whatever it is. Now. It sounds very easy. I can I can sketch you out what that looks like on you know an A4 piece of paper in you know maybe five minutes. And I used to do this kind of professionally, so I think I'm going to come pretty close to the right answer. Now, if I take that that piece of paper though, and I bring it over to the hospital and say this is what we should do, they'll be enthusiastic. Say this is fantastic. Let's get started on this. You know, it's going to take three years. And you're like, well, you know, I could just click this computer into this network right here, and they're like, well, it's more than that, right? Because now you have. Uh, health data, you have to be very careful uh, about that. Only so who's going to have access to it? How often is it going to be backed up? Where is it going to be backed up? Uh, is there an ethics approval for being able to do this? Do you need an ethics approval to be able to do Right. So there's like all of these kind of things I think are simmering in the background that are fundamental building blocks to, to, to building this out in a, in a clinically impactful way. I, I know that I'm spending a, a, a disproportionate amount of my time on those types of challenges as opposed to simply research because we have so many algorithms that really work quite well the gap here is how do we how do we go there then we have other challenges where what are we going to do build a unique user interface for every single tool where now oh here oh i'm doing prostate i need to click on my prostate tool and then i need a tab alt tab back into this other tool in order to type in the lymphocyte density is a pathologist going to use that if a pathologist can just look at that image and say oh there's about 37 of them and just type the number 37 in are they really going to double click on that and then like highlight a region and then click run and then wait three minutes and then it comes back like, oh, these are the liberals, do you agree, right? It all has to be pre-computed for them otherwise, because keep in mind, pathologists don't really need these algorithms yet, right? A pathologist really doesn't need a breast cancer detection algorithm because they've been detecting breast cancer successfully for 30 years just by looking at each and right? So if you want to provide value add to them, it has to actually be value add. It has to give them more confidence. It has to be fast. It has to fit into their established workflows. It, it can't be a hassle. That, so that's, I think, like the short term of, of what that process is going to be, is, is to try to figure out how to do those things. In the long term, of course, we'll have biomarkers that are really going to have to be computationally based. But I think in order to earn the trust of our, our pathologists and medical colleagues, we have to start with things that they can verify, that they can look at and say, you highlighted that as breast cancer. I think that's also breast cancer. You did a great job. And they see that a few thousand times. And they say, you know what? This, these people know what they're doing. You know, I like the result. I've given them some feedback. I said, you know, it should actually be this way. And if you do it, it'll be faster. And, you know, I've, I've developed a relationship with them. And now we can start to look at kind of more experimental things. But I think if you walk into a pathology department that doesn't know you, that's never worked with you, and you say, I have a biomarker that's going to predict immune therapy response, you know, give me access to your infrastructure. And I'm just going to build a, a system that uses it and spits out a number into an Excel sheet that then the pathologist has to find on their in their email in order to click and look up. But I won't provide any images. It's not interpretable, that sort of stuff. You, you're not going to have that connectivity. You know, they're just going to look at you and say, you know, maybe maybe we should start with something a little bit more more basic first. But if we do this correctly, I think it's it's 
this is the most interesting thing. If we do this correctly, it's highly generalized. If we think about not a single instance, but try and solve all of the use cases at the same time, or what are the pieces required for solving all of those use cases at the same time, it will eventually be something like an app store, where you can go in and say, I'm interested in this pathology algorithm for breast cancer, this one for prostate cancer, click, 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 boom, download, and it's integrated into your, into your system. It updates your certifications and say, these are the algorithms that we're using in versions and all the all the legal requirements, all of those will probably be in like JSON or XML. So you have those also available and it kind of makes this whole entire thing more, more organic. I'd like to propose one additional idea if we, we have time. I imagine a situation where certain places have expertise in different diseases. And I don't think that this is an uncommon thing. There are certain places that are excellent at brain cancer. There's other places that are excellent at prostate cancer. Some that are, you know, kidney disease places. It doesn't have to be cancer. I can imagine a world in the future as internet speeds improve and we kind of figure out how to anonymize data appropriately, that sort of stuff, where a single site will build a model for, let's say, detecting breast cancer. And all, this is a dream, I, I, I assure you that, all hospitals, instead of going and doing that process on site themselves, where they have to build their own model for their own people, they can go and submit that data to a single kind of institute that has the, we'll say, the leading edge type thing. So you can imagine something like an immunoscore, instead of everyone kind of coming up with their own interpretation of an immunoscore, and you have to be specifically trained, and if you're trained by two different people, you might get two slightly different immunoscores. One person builds an immunoscore, this is the immunoscore reference algorithm, all the data gets sent there, it gets computed and maintained by, by that institution, that's their contribution to science, they send back the associated results for that, which are of course reviewed on site and integrated into the, the patient's health record. And I hope that we can get, get to that. Because then as well, those institutions will also have access to much broader data sets. So their models will, in fact, get better. And then it becomes a commitment to them. They say, we're, we're going to do this sort of thing. We're going to provide this. It's not clear to me how that connects with, with companies. Uh, but I think hospitals are much more willing to work with other hospitals that have similar, we'll say, ethical requirements and similar legal requirements than saying, I'm going to just give all of this data to, for example, Google so in hopes that they build a cancer algorithm and give me free access to it later on or, or something like that. So I think that there's an opportunity, especially for what I imagine will become more cutting edge research biomarker type stuff, stuff that's going to be really sophisticated and challenging to build, which is very exciting and a place where I hope to spend more of my time in the future. I think those are the types of algorithms in particular that are really going to be advanced at a site level. and the, the ability to kind of remotely share in those results is going to be incredible. I don't think it's five years away. On the note, I, I'm I'm really looking forward to see a lot of successful research and products coming out from your group, your collaboration with Emory, and hopefully digital pathology sees a lot of success stories in the coming next five years or so. On that note, thank you so much, Andrew, for your time and. Have a nice day. Thank you for having me. And I should point out as well, we are hiring for all positions at basically all times, uh, graduate students.